Hi there. Welcome to the Thomas Industry Update Podcast, actionable information for industry leaders. I'm Tony Uphoff. I'm excited to introduce you today to Dr. Sal Menzo, the superintendent of the Wallingford, Connecticut Public Schools and a dedicated STEM education advocate. STEM and workforce development programs are absolutely critical for American manufacturers, but other than hand-wringing and talking about all the open jobs across the industry, many of us haven't done much to address this growing concern, except for Sal Menzo. He's really tackled this program with his local community in a uniquely innovative way, and we think his community-focused approach has broader applicability beyond the town of Wallingford. Sal and I jumped right into our discussion in today's podcast, so I want to just take a moment to provide some background before we begin. After first joining the district a decade ago, Sal talked to local Wallingford community members, students, parents, and even business owners about what they thought their town schools needed. Nearby manufacturers were looking for trainees with skills that could be taught in elementary, middle, and high school without needing a college degree, and they needed new hires fast. Students needed job opportunities and local underemployed adults needed new career options. Sal quickly determined there was a need for training to highlight STEM topics and showcase the opportunities available in industry. By collaborating to achieve community buy-in on his plans, Sal turned Wallingford into a STEM town. The unique initiative aims to expose both students and community members to the available roles in industry and offers the diverse training they need to get started on new career paths. you're not just dealing with students, you're also dealing with the parents of students. So talk a little bit about how you got, I hate to use the expression, the buy-in of those constituencies, but how did that process work? And, and did you hit some rough spots there along the way where either companies didn't really understand how to participate and or were some of your academic colleagues a little dubious? I think that the key was making certain that people understood that we weren't doing this for any other reason than we wanted success for all of our students. A successful community is only as good as the success of every single member. We need to make sure that was clear. So one of the key things that we did along the way that businesses were part of, as well as parents, as well as students, as well as all of our community members in that collective impact approach, was we developed community core values. And that was a really important opportunity for the community to come together because they weren't school district core values. They were Wallingford community core values. And we basically stated, we, the members of Wallingford community, believe that to sustain our community fiscal, environmental, and educational vitality, we must persevere. And from that came our nine core values of respect, belonging, integrity, health and wellness and safety, community involvement, engagement embracing diversity, personal responsibility, lifelong learning, and creativity. And that really set a tone for everyone. As a superintendent, I really started looking at, okay, how do we make the connection? We know that we're a community. We have these core values. But how do we make that connection with business in a way that people aren't going to be skeptical as to why we're doing what we're doing? I think that the fact was that we just had to really share with people that there was a genuine concern for student success. And that all became part of what we have is known as in Wallingford as the Wallingford 100, which when I say it, everybody's going to say, well, it makes perfect sense. 100% community involvement plus 100% student engagement equals 100% student success. 
So really, when you layered some of the symbolic as well as the, the, the authentic opportunities together, we really were able to receive incredible support. Now, along the way, as we started implementing lean strategies, I was able to get my administrative team and my teachers. And I, when I say get, it really wasn't about forcing. It was having them become part of the process to see that this is a business concept that does translate to education. And I think just taking that simple concept allowed us to really, really be able to transcend that chasm between business and education. And I think we've been fortunate because the outcomes of, for example, implementing Lean has been our ability as a district to maintain staffing. We have not had the massive layoffs because of budget cuts. We've actually retained staff. We've actually added staff and programs while the budget has continued to be challenging in many other parts of the state. So I think along the way that buy-in had to come in a variety of ways and then engaging people throughout the process. And again, like you said, early in the process, when we were bringing in Lean, we did an activity with Legos and I brought in every union president. We have nine unions in our district and they all participated. They were the initial people to get the buy-in with. And from that point on, we've been doing Kaizen events around processes in the school system regarding education. But I think overall, again, there's been some very, very deliberate strategies. And again, it goes back to bringing people together around a common focus, bringing people together around core values as a community. These core values to this day are still posted in the town hall, the police station, the fire station, every school, all of our social service agencies. These have meaning to the members of our community. Yeah, Sal, so impressive. And, you know, I wish I could conjure up for the listeners of our podcast here what it was like. I, I participated in a meeting with Sal and many of the, the local manufacturers. I, I believe there were probably eight or nine of them at the meeting. It was really incredible to watch the level of interaction. And, you know, I could feel the energy from this group that they had bought into this idea and it was really starting to accelerate. I also noted in your program what I consider to be a very unique approach to hands-on training and how you involved retired engineers and other professionals in the community in educating program participants. Talk a little bit more about how that process came about and the success sure. of that. Sure, and that came out of necessity. I think a lot of what we're doing comes out of necessity. We're working with businesses because we need them to stay in town and be vital and grow. I need to grow programs, but the challenge is that in the area of career technical education, many universities are not producing as many students we need in those areas. In addition, the programs are very, very general because a person certified in career technical education has the ability to teach many areas. And what we found in having to develop our courses for advanced manufacturing, our teachers are phenomenal. We're so fortunate. We have a great department, but few, if any, have ever worked in an advanced manufacturing environment. And what some districts have chosen to do is they've outsourced their um, classes to community colleges, which is great. But community colleges are having challenges finding enough teachers. So it really wasn't an, a viable option for us. So I was sitting at a meeting and I said, you know, I need to get myself in front of people who have access to retirees. And immediately ARP popped into my head and I made a couple calls, found out when their next board meeting was and showed up. And I said, I have this idea. Can you help me out? And ironically enough, they were working in this area. And so we ended up putting together a program with ARP to host events throughout the state to identify recently retired practitioners in the area of advanced manufacturing. We're fortunate we have five retirees who have signed on to work with our school district. They've been meeting with staff to review curriculum. They're going to be working on curriculum over the summer as well as in the fall. 
but then they're also going to be going into the classroom to provide that authentic, hands-on experience for our staff, but also our students. And we see this really as a win-win-win. We're honoring the value of our retirees in our country, which I think oftentimes we lose sight of the fact that some of our retirees still have value. They know they do, but they don't always get tapped to provide that value. We're also in incredibly increasing the, the ability and the opportunity for our teachers. A lot of districts will do externships, meaning that teachers will go out and learn and then come back. Our teachers, as a credit to them, they don't want to leave the classroom. They love what they do. So bringing in these experts and having them embed that professional development is a win, huge win for that. And then also having our students seeing that intergenerational connection and that love for lifelong learning on the part of their classroom teacher, as well as the senior or the person who has retired, that's a win for the student as well. So we're really fortunate. It's the first of its kind in the country. AARP is looking to try to replicate this in other places because it's not a, a revolutionary idea. It's not like it's rocket science. It just, it was an idea that popped into my head and I was fortunate enough to be in the right room at the right time to make it happen for our district. So I, I really do see the value in it. And I'm, I'm really excited because these individuals are so motivated. And actually, when they first met with our teaching staff, the teaching staff said it was the best professional development they've had in years. So excited to hear more about that, Sal, because as you tell it, it seems obvious, but it certainly wasn't obvious when you first introduced it. And, and kudos to you on that. One of the trends we pay a lot of attention to is, particularly in manufacturing today, we're dealing with a multi-generational workforce in ways that we've never seen before. So some of this is the size of the millennial generation being equal to the size of the baby boom generation of the workforce at the exact same time. First time in history, generations of those sizes have ever been together. But the demographic stretch is huge. So I think there's a lot of benefit to what you're talking about. Talk a little bit about, you know, you have a few students who, who've been a part of the program and, you know, they're, they're going to step into careers now. How do you reinstill that this isn't just a job, but a long-term for career for them? How do you stay in touch with them? How does the program stay in touch with some of these young people? What we've been fortunate enough is that, again, they're all working within our community and all the businesses that hired them are part of our business think tank. So we, we have direct connection with their employers. And so we ask about them. We're able to connect with them. We stay in contact with them through email and, and such. And we've had several of them being willing to come in and talk to our future pipeline students. So we're very, very fortunate that we have those relationships with our, our candidates. I think that we're also just excited by the fact that the businesses in town continue to see this as an important venture. What we were told when we were establishing this program, because we asked them, what do you want us to teach? And they said, we really just want them to be ready to be good employees. And we teased that out. What does that mean to be a good employee? And they said to us, don't teach them a skill. Don't mess them up. And we laughed because we thought they were kidding and they weren't. So it really goes back to the fact that they're hiring for personality traits and work ethic, and they're going to train for skill. So what we've been fortunate enough to do is provide them with those raw materials to do that. Students, and, and I don't mean to demean students by saying raw materials, but that in terms of manufacturing, those students are coming to them fresh, ready to go, and we're able to provide that. The other interesting thing about the pipeline, if I may just add, is that this is not just for students. We're also bringing back people that are underemployed or unemployed. A lot of the people who are underemployed, the jobs that they have presently would have once been jobs for high school students, and they're no longer able to get those jobs as high school students because people are trying to raise a family on those jobs. So as we took 
people out of those underemployed positions, those once classified high school jobs in the fall, those nine jobs, we backfilled those with nine additional students. I think we oftentimes hear from businesses that students come to them and they don't have a sense of responsibility. They don't have a sense of collaboration. Some of it is obviously we need to do all do better jobs in helping our students grow in that area. But some is that they don't have the authentic experience of having held a job, like many of us did. By also offering these pipeline programs, we're not just helping the employees for the people who are trying to raise a family or trying to create a career. We're also now offering opportunities for our high school students to develop those soft skills, those personal skills that students need to be successful in employment and success in future lives. We see this all the time across the industry, that there's a a series of technical skills that to a certain extent can be learned. There are some experiential skills that you need to learn on the job, but those soft skills oftentimes can make the difference. And, you know, having an understanding of communication skills, understanding how to collaborate, work with other people, the basic skill set I think is critical to get into the curriculum, if you will, or the, the education of young people. As you look forward, you know, if someone listening to this is in a, a region across the country and they're struggling with this and they want to develop a grassroots approach to this similar to the way you did, what advice would you give them about getting started? How would you recommend they start to tackle this? We believe in and we've kind of developed an ecosystem around problems. And it goes back to design thinking, which we start teaching in kindergarten, but defining your problem as a community, identifying who are the influencers, so to speak, in your community. And they don't have to be always your traditional people. It can be, yes, of course, your elected officials. It might be your police department, fire department. But who else is the person or people in your community that impact things and have influence? and invite them to a meeting. Have them just talk about what are their pain points? What are the things that are stressing them out in terms of their ability to do what they need to do, be it as a parent, be it as an individual, be it as a business owner? And then from there, try to really draft an idea of what is the problem you're trying to solve. You have to have that focus. I've talked to places who have tried to do this and they kind of are just shooting darts in different directions and they're not hitting the board whatsoever because they don't have a clear focus. One of the key things when we identified ourselves as a STEM town a year ago was that we developed a problem statement for our community. And that's been, again, our guiding light as to why we stay focused. But I think first you need to identify who the key players are. And I would just, you know, visually just draw the center circle of the problem you're trying to solve that you think you're trying to solve and then concentric circles around it, each identified with who are the impactors, who are the influencers that could help you solve your problem closest to the problem and then gradually getting farther out and then identify the people that you can invite to a meeting to start having the conversation. Really smart advice, Al. Two quick questions for you to wrap up. What's the one thing that, given the background and the experience you've had, you wish more people knew about manufacturing? That it's a career. It's not a job. And I think this is important for parents and everybody to hear. Manufacturers want to have their their employees come in and they want to continue to grow them. And I think that's the greatest message that I continue to send to our families and our students, that this is not a position that you get and then it's full stop, period, you're done. No, this is a place where you can continue to grow and you could actually, you know, end up with that college degree. Well said, Sal. One last one for you. So if we were to post a billboard with a one sentence motto or philosophy of yours, what would it say? What is easy isn't always right and what is right isn't always easy. And I think that really is the core of what we're trying to accomplish is that what we're trying to achieve is not easy, but it is right. 
and we're going to, along the way, we're going to have our challenges, we're going to have our setbacks, but we have to stay focused on our mission, which is success for everyone in our community. We'll continue to follow Sal and the Wallingford community's progress in their STEM education initiatives. To learn more about the program, Sal's efforts, and the impact the program has had on the community, check out our ongoing coverage on Thomas Insights linked in the show notes of this podcast. The Thomas Industry Update podcast is hosted by Tony Uphoff and produced by Michaela Tierney. If you'd like to share your feedback about this or any other episode, please email us at podcast at thomasnet.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or recommend us to a colleague. Your feedback helps us continue to advocate for industry across the airwaves. The Thomas Industry Update podcast is recorded at Five Penn Plaza in the heart of New York City, where Thomas has been headquartered for 121 years. Want to get more insights on supply chain, IoT, industrial business, and more? Sign up for our Thomas Industry Update daily newsletter. With more than 300,000 subscribers, your inbox will be in good company. Subscribe now for free at thomasnet.com updates.